Our scripture reading is from Genesis 25, 24 through 34. And when the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skilled hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. One day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. I remember um, when I was a youth director in Friona, when I was in college uh, up in the Panhandle, we got some Friona connections here. And, uh, and, and we had a, a senior that graduated and went off to Angelo State University, which I've been told is more properly called uh, Harvard on the Concho. So I've, I've learned that since I've been down here. And uh, that student came back and said, you know, came back to church and said, you've got to learn this song, Ryan, we've got to learn this song. And I'm thinking, okay. Uh, and so she said, okay, this song is called Give Us Clean Hands. And I'm thinking that's a strange name for a song. My, my psalm familiarity was not very good at the time. I didn't recognize the language. Give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. And the chorus of this song, which was written by Charlie Hall, had this great line and it said, uh, Oh God, let us be a generation that seeks, that seeks your face, oh God of Jacob. And I love the song, but I didn't understand. I'm like, why is this big deal about oh God of Jacob? And it's like in Psalm 46, God of Jacob this and God of Jacob that. It seems like there would be a better name that we could, you know, call God than God of Jacob. Because we know some of the Jacob story, we mainly know when we think of him that he was a deceiver, you know. We think that guy was a swindling horse trader. Nobody likes Jacob. Why, why is it God of Jacob? So I knew there was something there, but it's just I've always struggled to know why about God of Jacob. In fact, I did some research this week. I was looking through the Psalms. 
No one is mentioned in the Psalms, none of the patriarchs, none of the prophets, nobody is mentioned more than Jacob. Jacob is mentioned 34 times in the, in the Psalms, in all 150 Psalms, nobody else is mentioned more. In fact, if you add up Abraham, Isaac, uh, David, the whole mess, none of them are mentioned as many times altogether as Jacob. So what is it about Jacob? What is it about Israel, the people of God, as they're praying and worship and they're writing songs? What is it about David when he's writing songs of worship and of confession? Why does he work this in all the time? What is the big deal about the God of Jacob? I think the basic answer is that God of Jacob reminds us that God is a God of God's chosen people, that we are first and foremost a people that have been chosen by God. That's our birthright. That's our heritage. That's why we sing. That's the language that we have when we offer ourselves to God in prayer. So the whole concept of the God of Jacob is really a window into God's character. So we want to spend a few weeks in this Genesis story. Uh, we started last fall and took a little break for the rest of the year. We got through the Abraham story, and now we're picking up in Genesis where we left off. We're about halfway through the book, and Jacob dominates the next 10 chapters. So thought we'd have a little uh, time together on the life of Jacob, and more properly on what we mean in Scripture by the God of Jacob. So as we go along the Genesis story, God's promises are being fulfilled through Abraham's descendants. We find out that Isaac uh, marries Rebekah later, a little bit later in life. They're 40 when they get married, and it's it's a beautiful story, the Isaac and Rebekah story, and how it comes about. And there's a lot of there's a really cool romance in there. But they're, they're 40, which was a little late. You know, normally if you weren't married and having kids by 20 in that culture, you were kind of behind the times. So uh, it took a little while. And as many of our ancestors in the faith, Rebecca was barren. She was not able to have children. So the struggles of life hit her early. You're married a little later. Uh, you struggle to have children. And it's really interesting what Isaac does. Because I never noticed this piece about Isaac before. So Abraham, when his wife was barren, you remember Sarah, what did he do when he got impatient? He went and found another wife. You know, that's a very pragmatic solution. I'll just go marry somebody else that can give me children. Uh, and so anyway, that was not the correct response, obviously. But Isaac, he doesn't go look for another wife. In fact, he really just puts himself out there and he prays for Rebecca. It's a beautiful scene where he's praying for his wife. And so God answers their prayer as there to be the line that would carry on Abraham's promise. And she conceives. But life struggles don't stop for Rebecca when she conceives. In fact, there's a struggle in her womb. Life's challenges, life's brokenness, life's struggles, the brokenness between families, it starts early with Rebecca. And she feels it in her womb. And so she cries out. She went, the text says, to inquire of the Lord. She says, if it is thus within me, right, if there's this conflict within me like I think, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? This is a common human question, right? Rebecca's going, why is this happening to me? Why this conflict in my womb? And the Lord answers Rebecca's prayer. And he says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be divided. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. 
what in the world is God up to? Doesn't God know that in this culture, if you want to reach people, you play your cards to the advantage of the firstborn son? Any firstborn, any elders in here? Firstborn children? Yeah, a lot of us, we, we, I see the hands out there, I know, and I see moreover on your faces, and I see you younger and middle children going, yeah, glad, glad I'm not weighed down with the burdens and the travails of the oldest child. Um, but what is God up to, and why do we have conflict so early in the story? Is, is human nature thus? Is it just another window into the fact that how after the fall, after we were cast out of the garden, that we were just destined for conflict and pain our entire lives? In fact, you look at the Jacob story, Jacob never gets out of conflict. He has conflict everywhere he goes. He has conflict around every corner, every person of his family. He's just conflict guy. What is God up to? Why the God of Jacob. Why is Jacob identified as a patriarch that all of us refer to when we pray to God, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob? If we look at the New Testament, we have several places. You know, we can think of Jesus saying the last will be first and the first will be last. We think of Paul saying God chose what is low and despised in the world. If you were a younger child, if you weren't the eldest son, you were, you were low and despised in the culture, uh, not that you were a bad person, you, just, you were not going to be looked on with any kind of status. So low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's what, that's Paul's responding to that quandary inside of us. But I love Rebecca in the story. I love her character. I love what she does. I love what she teaches us. Rebecca's a pilgrim. You know, she makes a long journey and risks a lot to leave her family, to go be a part of this new family. And Rebecca asks a hard question. Rebecca just goes straight to God in prayer. This is not something that you would expect to see from a character like Rebecca. And I love her audacity. I love the fact that she puts herself out there and that she asks this question in a bold way. If this is happening inside of me, why? Why is this happening? Why this conflict? Why this pain? Why these struggles of life? What is really going on? So she asks a tough question, and she prays to God. She doesn't leave it to Isaac, who's happy to pray to God, but she doesn't leave it to him. She goes to God herself. It's really hard in the Jacob story, and much of the story of Genesis, to avoid the question of election, or what we might call God's foreknowledge, what God seemed to put in motion ahead of any of our opinions or consultation, right? There are things in motion that God seems to do that, that the characters in the story have nothing to do with. Uh, we, what we see, the behavior we see in Esau and Jacob later, it seems in this little oracle here that this has been set up that way. So what is the deal? Why is God's election or God's foreknowledge, why is this good news? Why do we see this in the scriptures as a good thing? And we're not alone when we ask that question, by the way. Uh, when Paul is trying to, we're, we're not the first people that come along and say, this just doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. I mean, how, how, how do they not have any say in the matter? It doesn't seem like they do. I mean, we see, we see some fault in the character of Esau. We see him being a little ravenous, a little gluttonous maybe. Uh, we see him a little rough around the edges, the way he's described. He's not really maybe the one that would be suitable uh, to lead the people of God. Uh, but we also see the flaws in Jacob. So why, why does Jacob get the call? Why does he get the nod uh, to come out of the bullpen and Esau doesn't? What's the big deal? Paul responds to this question because he has a church full of people who are Jewish Christians, right? And, and the, the Jewish Christians like us 
We, we like our birthright. We like where we come from. We like the things that we put in place in our lives ahead of time. And we think, you know, we ought to get some tokens of appreciation for that. God, don't you see what I've done with my life? Don't you see where I come from? Don't you see the things that I've put together and the things that I've made happen? And Paul says, okay, I hear your questions. I hear your questions about you guys being the chosen people and all that. And so when we look at election, Paul says, what shall we say? Shall we say that this is an injustice on God's part? I mean, is God unjust? And are we going to question that? And he says, by no means, in Romans chapter 9. And then he, then he points the crew, the, the Jewish crowd, he points them back to Moses. He said, remember Moses? Do you remember what God told Moses? He told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Again, why is this good news? Why is election good news? One piece of the puzzle, I think, when we talk about election, why this is hard for us, is that we just tend to chronically be in the habit of remaking God in our own image. The church fathers love to say, you know, God created us in his image, and then we immediately started recreating God in our image. Right? We want God to be like us. I remember the song that was always on VH1 in, in, in my era, if any of you are uh, my age. Uh, there was a song, I don't even remember who wrote it. What if God was one of us, just a stranger on the bus, trying to make his way home, right? Just this little subway God who's just all just mixed up with us. What if God was one of us? Um, and we tend to do that all the time. We just want to remake God. We think that God is motivated by the same things that motivate us. And we are like Isaac, right? We get the part. Isaac loved Esau. Why? Very conditionally. He loves Esau because he liked the game. You know, he liked the outdoors thing. He's like, this is my son that always brings me the game. He cooks it for me. This is great. It's built in. We don't even have to spend money from the budget because Esau's always bringing in the good stuff from the field. This is great. I mean, Jacob's fine, and he's home keeping the sheep and doing the domestic stuff, but I really like Esau because he, you know, meets my needs, and I like that. So it's a conditional love that we see in Isaac, and we all understand this. Goodness knows we, not all, we are surrounded by conditional love. We are indoctrinated by conditional love. We, we see this every day. We work with people. We're always around conditional love. And so it's natural for us to think, you know, God loves us conditionally as well. In other words, God will love me more if I do this. He might love me a little less if I do that. And so we just make our own little, you know, qualitative, quantitative system in our heads where we make our own algebra equation for why God would love us more, why God would love us less. All the while, God, whose nature is love, First John, right, God is simply love. His character, his being is love. He, he doesn't have love. He is love. God is love from all eternity. And God, whose nature is love, is the very definition of loving unconditionally. <clears throat> and so, what if God's election is part of his unconditional love? What if we don't have all the details worked out, maybe, but what if this is, there's something that's ultimately loving about God's way of setting things up and making the best, in this case, of a bad situation, right? Bringing good out of evil. The problem comes, uh, you know, again, we, we kind of make God a conditional God that's motivated like we are. And uh, I love what R.R. Reno says, that sometimes we, we approach God as though we want to stand beside God rather than stand before God. 
It's a big difference. Uh, standing beside someone, this is why our friends are no help when we fall in love, right? Uh, you think about when you fall in love and, and you're just head over heels for somebody and your friends are all, would you quit being so unreasonable? Would you, would you come back to poker night? You know, would you come back to church? We, we haven't seen you in weeks. Like you're always spending time with this new person that you met. And you're like, I don't want to hear about being reasonable. I just fell in love. What's the big deal? Like, let's have a little fun. So again, we, we put ourselves beside God and we say, God, why aren't you more reasonable? Why aren't you more like us? And God all the while saying, I'm expressing my unconditional love for a very large swath of very different people. <laughs> and this whole plan takes some time to understand. So if we, if we can stand before God in worship rather than beside God as an advisor, wouldn't we all love to advise God? And we do. And I take plenty of time to try and do that. But it really sets us free if we're able to do that. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy if the core motivation is God is love, I think it helps me to reconcile. It helps me to put these two struggles together. And aren't we glad that God's love is not subject to the whims of the worthiness lists that we tend to make? And God knows I've made hundreds of them. Rather, God reserves unconditional love and the potential of restoring all people to a relationship with God. Thank goodness. God is not just going to restore the elder sons to a relationship with God. I'm very grateful for that. This is a really tough one for me. I think it's, it's providential. Uh, actually, my, my youngest brother is here visiting, passing through town. And it's, it's, uh, it's very fitting to talk about the whole brother schematic because I'm, I'm, the, I'm the hopeless eldest son. Like, I'm the worst. I'm the worst of all oldest sons, oldest children. And so the way I was thinking when I was writing this sermon, I was thinking, I am just, I am up to my chin in eldest sensibilities. I, my whole world is shaped by eldest sensibilities. And I'm not even living in the ancient Near East and Jewish culture. If I was, I would have been even worse than the worst. And, and I think it's hard for us to understand how important and how critical that oldest piece of the, for the birthright deal was. And so the fact that God sets up this economy where Jacob is able to sneak in and grab the heel. Yaakov is Jacob's name in, in Hebrew. Yaakov. Akev is the Hebrew word for heel. So Yaakov, it's like grabbing the heel. That God would put this together where Jacob is the younger son who's grabbing the heel and he's horse trading Esau out of his birthright. That that would be lifted up in the story that this is how God would set up to, to make the nation of Israel. There would eventually be the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Jacob. It's, it's just mind-boggling. It, it really attacks and harms and hurts my feelings, uh, the eldest sensibility feelings. So I'm just being upfront with you. This is really hard for me. It exposes all of that in me. Because sometimes this is a real barrier to grace. This is for all of us a barrier to grace. And we rehearse the, well, I'm supposed to do this. And in return, I'm supposed to get that. And then when we're being hard on ourselves, we say, well, gosh, I should know better than that. I'm the oldest, I mean, I should know. I should have already known that. Why should God have to bother forgiving me for that? Because I shouldn't have messed up in the first place. Because I should know better. In fact, I do know better. I've known better since I was five, right? We, do, we go through that whole thing. And of course, it was tough for the early Jewish Christians as well. The struggle to welcome the Gentiles as full members of the church, of the family of God, this was really tough for them too. We are not alone. So my better moments this week as I was wrestling through this, I thought of this great song by Charles Wesley uh, called Depth of Mercy. 
a song we sometimes sing during Lent or Ash Wednesday, and uh, the, the song goes like this, depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear, me the chief of sinners spare? That, that's the posture. I think we read the Jacob story, we begin to lean in and say, okay, if God shows mercy on whom he'll show mercy, then can there still be mercy that's reserved for me? For all the places that I've wandered from grace and all the people that I've shut out of grace because of my own conditional love, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Another verse uh, says, I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face. Anyone ever feel like you've provoked God to his face? So where do we go from here? How do we work out this whole question of election and of God's foreknowledge and, and a God who we read about has unconditional love? Where do we go from here? <clears throat> I think at least for today, as we dive into the story, some of these questions will be answered by characters in the story and details in the story. But as we're sitting here, I think as a reader of Genesis, we're not supposed to know all the answers yet. So we're supposed to lean in. I think we're supposed to ask our questions. And if Paul uses Moses to answer the questions of the elder sons in his day, I thought it would be maybe instructional for us to look at the Moses story as well. So if Moses is held up as the one that hears from God that I'll show mercy, whom I'll show mercy, what is it about this story? So we turn to Exodus 33 as we wrap up here. And, you know, Moses is pleading with God. Moses and Rebecca, they're pleading with God for things to be different. Moses says, please don't send us away from here, God. Don't send us off this mountain. If you're not going to go with us, don't even bother sending us. Because I don't want to go if you're not there. And so this is God's response to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, he prays again, show me your glory, right? Show me everything you've got. Answer all my questions. Explain the mystery to me. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before your name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you will stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So I think as we wait and as we wrestle, I think this is, I think this is a good way forward for us. If we can wait with Rebecca's question, remember Rebecca's question. I think all of us have this question. We all have something that would help us ask this question. Rebecca's question is, if it be so, if life's going to be like this, why? Why is this happening to me? If we can ask Rebecca's question in Moses' location, I think that's a really good place for us. And where was Moses? He was hidden in the cleft of the rock. God says, you can wait for me to pass by. You're not going to see the whole story. You're not going to see everything you think you want to see right now. But I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, and my glory will pass by, and I will cover you. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. This is a safe place. This is a good place to ask our questions. So if we can ask Rebecca's question in Moses' location, I think we will sense the presence of God 
I think we will have a window into the unconditional love of God, and I think we'll begin to discern more what God is up to uh, in this story. And so may it be so, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.